0: Ooh. Welcome to Irish Passport uh, Let's do it Welcome to the Irish Passport
1: I'm Tim McInerney
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary We're friends Can you hear Naomi? Ano Fat Tim This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics uh-huh. I'm recording One, One
1: two, two, three, three. Okay Hello everyone, we're back. We're back from our summer rest and we're in for a whole new season of the Irish Passport podcast. Naomi, how are you? Are you feeling rested?
0: Hi, yeah, thanks Tim. Great to be back and hi to everybody.
1: Now we're back actually jumping straight into political season because a whole lot of things are happening uh, at this beginning of September 2023. There have been some really, really breaking developments that we need to talk about and that concerns, you might have seen on the news today, an extremely controversial bill that relates to Northern Ireland, and that has passed the House of Commons in Westminster. And Naomi, you've been reporting on this a little bit, so uh, I'm going to ask you to fill me in and fill the listeners in on what is this all about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about the so-called Northern Ireland Legacy Bill, which on Wednesday was approved by MPs and the House of Commons, which means it is set to become law.
1: Right. Okay. so now we said, I said that this was controversial. How is this controversial? Can we lay out exactly why why this is uh, hitting the headlines? right now? Sure,
0: so just to lay out the context, there are about 3,000 unsolved murders in Northern Ireland dating from the time of the Troubles, the conflict, and a third of them about were still under investigation by the police. Many of the people we're talking about are completely innocent civilians who were killed, many of them children, and this means tens of thousands of family members who do not have answers or justice about why their loved ones were killed. Um, And many of them have been fighting for decades to try and get the most basic accountability for, you know, just basic things you would expect from a state, things like inquests or police investigations. And the, what the Northern Ireland Legacy Bill does uh, is as soon as it comes into force, it instantly outlaws any further police investigations and any ongoing ones have to stop. Um, there can be no further inquests and there can be no further inquiries by the police ombudsman into troubles related killings. And it also has the power to grant immunity to killers. It's got really sweeping implications for Northern Ireland and particularly the families of people killed during the Troubles. And what's really remarkable about this is even though it was passed in Westminster yesterday, it's united Northern Ireland in opposition against it. Every side in Northern Ireland opposes this. Unionists, nationalists, everyone from the Democratic Unionist Party, Titian Fein, church leaders, rights groups, victims groups, the whole spectrum. Nevertheless, the British Parliament has voted to impose it on Northern Ireland against its will.
1: Um, Listeners might remember that we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode about generational trauma and about how this is just this huge, big legacy that's hanging over everyone in Northern Ireland, just all of these unsolved killings from all kinds of perspectives, unsolved killings by the IRA, by the British Army, by Loyalist paramilitaries, etc. Um, and that it's one of the reasons why it's this such a heavy legacy is that it will take so much to address this, right? Is so much resource and so much manpower. Is that why the British government is kind of shying away from this now? Like, what exactly are they trying to do with this bill? Um, Why have they introduced a bill like this when they know that it's going to anger absolutely everyone? And what exactly about this, let's say, if we can call it a quote-unquote solution um, to to this issue in present-day Northern Ireland, what about this is so unappealing or so upsetting to the people in Northern Ireland from all communities?
0: So I'm going to work through all of this. It's going to take a little bit of time, so just mm. bear with me. But I think so much is explained here by the political and the historical context to how this law first emerged. So just to give you a like a potted mm. history... This was introduced by the Boris Johnson government, and its passage through Parliament was then continued by the current government of Rishi Sunak. And the context in which it arose was something we've discussed in prior episodes, the backlash in Britain, particularly among the right wing, against the idea of the prosecution of British soldiers for alleged crimes that were committed during their deployments. And this backlash has happened in relation to Northern Ireland, but not just Northern Ireland. It's also happened uh, in relation to British soldiers accused of crimes while fighting in places like Iraq and Afghanistan too. So conservative plans, Mm. plans by the Conservative Party to exempt British troops from human rights laws during combat, they were first announced in 2016 by Theresa May's government, but they weren't advanced upon. I mean, at the time, as, as you can imagine, the government had a lot of other stuff on its plate. But this issue really began to get momentum in 2019. And that's when it became a campaigning issue that was championed by groups of veterans and taken up by MEPs, like the former minister, Johnny Mercer.
2: Unnecessary, seriously? You say that to Corporal Brian Wood, who I was with yesterday. He comes home from school and his kid is upstairs crying in his room. Why is he crying in his room? Daddy, they're all saying at school you're a murderer. And every single one of those allegations was found to be completely false. It is very clear to me that this is the first government not to come into this house and talk about what a difficult problem this is, but we will hand all our soldiers off to the human rights lawyers. This is the first government that's actually going to do something, do something to protect our servicemen and women. I'm proud of that and I make no apology for it at all. And
0: this, all this lobbying was successful and in the 2019 Tory leadership campaign, the potential future prime ministers were pressured by those veteranist groups to sign up to a pledge to protect veterans from quote-unquote unfair prosecutions. Boris Johnson promised to do it, and when he became Prime Minister, that's exactly what he did. He acted on this. Uh, The Conservative Party announced they were going to end quote-unquote vexatious legal actions against veterans. Um, This is the language that had been used by the right-wing press. Uh, By the way, vexatious. like The right-wing newspapers in the UK had complained that veterans were being hounded over historical claims, and there were suggestions... um, that the way to fix this could be by, for example, withdrawing from international human rights treaties.
1: There are many members of the armed services who continue to face the threat of vexatious uh, prosecutions. And we are finally, Mr. Speaker, bringing forward a solution to this problem, to enable the province of Northern Ireland to draw a line Under the Troubles.
0: It's kind of part of the broader take-back-control, sovereignist-nationalist movement in the UK. And the Legacy Bill was proposed by the British government in that context.
1: So I suppose listeners might be aware of this, perhaps one of the most symbolic instances of this was of course the case of soldier f right soldier f who was involved in the murders of bloody sunday and that became kind of totemic in this question of how far the british government was willing to take prosecutions of british soldiers in relation to the troubles can you kind of explain the historical context of that maybe
0: this is the other side of it right so at the same time that britain is having this really nationalist moment at the same time Investigations and inquests that had been delayed for decades and decades were finally beginning to bear fruit. Um, most mm. notably and most high profile, in 2019, the Britain's Prosecution Service deemed that there was sufficient evidence to actually charge a soldier for murders during Bloody Sunday in 1972. We did a whole episode about Bloody Sunday, which you can go back and listen to. This particular soldier, as you say, known as Soldier F, he uh, charges were brought against him for killing two civilians called William McKinney and James Ray. And that's an ongoing legal process and he's denied the murders. I want to take a moment here, which is something that I want to do throughout this discussion wherever I can, to focus on the human beings that we're talking about here, whose lives were taken, and whose families continue to suffer in the wake of that. Who were these people? William McKinney was 27. He was an amateur filmmaker, and he'd been recording video when the shooting started in Derry, and he was found shot in the back with his camera in his pocket. James Ray was 22. He was a civil rights activist and he worked at a dance hall. And at the time he was actually engaged to be married to an English girl. He again shot in the back when he was running away and he was shot a second time as he lay on the ground dying. That's according to the Sabol report. They were two of 13 people who were killed on that day. And the families of the victims at the time that you know this went forward and it emerged that you know charges would be brought against soldier F, they were actually disappointed. The victims' families were disappointed because they hoped that many more soldiers would be able to be prosecuted because they wanted answers for all the deaths, not just two. But even this development was it was treated as an outrage in Britain among the right wing press. It was the cause absolute anger that a soldier would be facing legal charges over something that they did um, while they were deployed on combat. Another key development, of course, was came after that. It was an inquest into the Ballymurphy massacre that concluded in 2021. Again, this is so, so long delayed. This was a result of an inquest for shootings that happened in 1971. So many decades, you know, the the family members of the people who were killed had been waiting for answers. And these finally came in 2021. Um, what had happened during the Ballymurphy massacre was this was a time when the British government was imposing internment. So basically the mass roundup of people of Catholic and nationalist background for imprisonment without trial um, if they had any suspicion that they were in the IRA. And as the British army was enforcing that and doing those arrests, they also shot a bunch of people over a few days in Belfast. Um, It was the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment of the British Army, and they shot a load of unarmed civilians around the Ballymurphy area. And this inquest into those deaths in May 2021, it declared that 10 people that were shot dead, were completely innocent, that they were doing nothing wrong, and that nine of them had been shot by the British army. The people were talking about, they included a priest called Father Hugh Mullen, and a 19-year-old called Francis Quinn, and they were both helping the wounded. And there was also a mother of eight who was killed called Joan Connolly, and she was actually shot in the face. And, you know, the rest of them are like a bunch of ordinary guys who were just, you know, going about their business on the street. This finding meant so much to their families, because for decades, there'd been these insinuations that, you know, if they, had, if they were shot, they must have been under some suspicion or must have been up to no good or something. And they really saw mm. the results of this inquest as clearing their name. And as a result of it, Britain's Ministry of Defence had to pay damages to the bereaved. So you have these developments, and in 2022 came the first successful prosecution of a British soldier for killing someone during the Troubles. This was a 53-year-old veteran, and he was given a suspended sentence for shooting Aidan McInnesby in the back at a checkpoint that the 23-year-old had to walk through in order to get to his home in County Tyrone. And as I say, they were, there was uproar about these things. It was seen as an absolute injustice by the British right. Um, it was a big issue in the tabloids. Veterans Group called it, you know, all of this, these developments a disgrace, that these, you know, heroes of the nation would be bothered by these investigations and prosecutions and stuff. And mm. this is the key context in which the legacy bill is being brought in, okay? That these, these processes okay. had finally begun to bear fruit.
1: Right, okay. And, and you can see so much how... Oh, the power of perspective is playing such a a major role here. If you think about the perspective of the families of innocent civilians who were shot during the Troubles but had nothing to do with paramilitary violence, for instance. I mean, I I can't imagine the rage that you must feel when you realise that your proximity to the Troubles, just the fact that you were living in Northern Ireland at the time when a British Army member shot dead an innocent person who belonged to your family, is enough to almost dismiss that or to not address it for so long Mm -hmm. in comparison to or in contrast to if this happened in Surrey you know if the British Mm -hmm. army shot 10 people dead in London you know uh, what a different story this would be these are innocent civilians who have been shot Um, but just like I say their proximity to the troubles makes it um not only makes it possible for the the powers that be to ignore them or put them on the back foot for this long for decades that we're seeing here but it also makes it possible for this other perspective to arise, right? Just the proximity um, to the Troubles makes it possible for this perspective to exist in the British right that, like you say, whatever they were doing, just the fact that they were in, in this place at this time means that they were probably up to no good. And therefore, you know, who cares about them anyway? What about our, our wonderful heroes exactly? This Complete lack of uh, a human empathy, really. I suppose for you know for innocent civilians, when it's in the case of a foreign place that can almost dehumanize them to this extent, it's, it's really striking. And I I can only imagine the absolute absolute rage of those families in the face of that.
0: It's it's just it's outrageous. Why why should people in Northern Ireland be allowed to be killed with impunity? That like mm. how is that a reasonable position? At all. Why should these people who are supposed to be citizens of the United Kingdom, why should they not have the same rights as anyone else to get deaths and murders investigated and to get justice when crimes have been committed? And it's really important to remember, like, the, the, the attempts by victims and their families to seek justice are often denigrated, denigrated along culture war lines. They're seen as, you know, meddlesome human rights lawyers and so on, but also dismissed as being a political agenda, a nationalist agenda, a Catholic agenda and so on. And that completely does not represent the spectrum of victims that we're talking about. These are people who were killed Mm. by the British Army, yes, sometimes with suspicion Mm. of collusion, yes, that is key and that is crucial. But also there are people who were killed by the IRA, by various paramilitaries, there's victims of all kinds and they their groups really reject being characterised as coming from one particular community or another.
1: On that note actually, let's take a listen to this clip. This is the voice of Kathleen Gillespie, whose husband Patsy was murdered by the IRA in the most horrific circumstances and here she hits out at the Troubles Legacy Bill on the UK's Sky News, saying that what was done to her husband and others is effectively being condoned.
2: What they had actually done was they chained Patsy to this van, which was loaded with twelve hundred pounds of explosives. As as soon as he drove into the checkpoint, the bomb was detonated by remote control. But they had a couple of minutes where he shouted a warning to the rest of the to the soldiers and that's how the the ones who got away, that's how they got away. Patsy's case is often described, Kathleen, as the human bomb. That's correct. That is the most cruel yeah. form of murder imaginable. Yeah, I often get asked, uh, you know, if one of the men came to the door and asked for forgiveness, what would you do? I said, well, I would make it very clear there was no forgiveness in me. But if he wanted to come in, I would make him a cup of tea and I'd ask him to answer one question. And the one question that I would ask is what made you think it was okay to sit down with other men and plan what you did to my husband? Tell me how you can justify that. What they did to Patsy has been condoned. And all the other atrocities are being condoned. At the end of the day they're getting away with what they've done and they think they're these big men that are trotting about. Oh I'm a result this and that and the other. And I'm not getting punished. So let me ask whoever's listening to this, how would you feel? If you're in my position, would you be all right about it?
1: Uh, let's just look at the law, yes, shall we? So yes. can you explain what is in the law? What does what would will, would, this law. We'll see We'll see yeah. how far it goes. Um, but what what does it propose to do exactly?
0: Yeah, I read through the text of the law to prepare this because I think the way I think it's really important to actually look at the text of these things to understand exactly. One um, thing that stood out to me immediately, which I hadn't actually realised about it, is it says, it does not matter if an event or conduct occurred in Northern Ireland, in another part of the United Kingdom, or elsewhere. So it's talking about murders and killings that happened anywhere, right? So this is a really interesting sort of cross-jurisdictional reach. This means that it would apply to deaths in the Republic or in France or in Gibraltar or whoever if they were deemed to be troubles related which I thought was a really interesting thing that like stood out to me. Um, But just to get down to the practicalities what does it do? This law sets up something called the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery that sounds like a nice right it's got independent in the title it's not independent okay it's a team of commissioners who would be appointed by the British government right the commissioner the chief commissioner would be appointed by the Secretary of State also has to resign if asked to do so by the Secretary of State, it's funded by the British government, um, the criteria for who the senior um, chief commissioner is, is they have to have been a senior judge in the UK justice system. Their job is described as, quote, to carry out reviews of deaths that were caused by conduct forming part of the troubles, to re- to, to reduce reports, which are called final reports, on the finding of each of the reviews of deaths and other harmful conduct and to determine whether to grant persons immunity from prosecution for serious or connected troubles-related offences, and also to produce a quote-unquote historical record of deaths. Okay, so anyone can apply to this commission to ask for immunity from prosecution. And who decides to grant this immunity? The chief commissioner does alongside two people that are appointed by the chief commissioner. Um, uh, it doesn't, wow. appear <laughs> doesn't apply to people who are convicted of terrorism offences, which is interesting because, yeah, that kind of excludes one side. Um, and as I say, yeah, it answers to Britain's secretary of state and receives funding from the British government. Um, the law mm. also says, this was another line that kind of stood out to me, the commission, quote, must not do anything which would risk prejudicing or would prejudice the national security interests of the United Kingdom. So that's extremely Ooh. interesting to me because the the yeah. collusion and the involvement of the British Secret Service in deaths as part of the dirty war is one of the major mm. sort of unanswered questions about the Troubles and one of the major open pages that we don't have accountability on. Um, they can mm. also pass stuff on to the PSNI and UK police forces, um, but it says the evidence given to it can't be used as evidence in trials or in a civil lawsuit or a coroner's report. So if a victim's family decided, oh, someone's admitted to doing something and we want to take this further, they, they can't do anything based on the material that was given to the commission. Um, the mm. reviews of deaths can be requested by, family members or the advocate general or attorney general of Northern Ireland, and they kind of have to do so within a five-year window. And crucially, this is the sort of the most draconian sweeping aspect of it. It ends all other processes. Okay. So the law states on and after the day in which this section comes into force, no criminal investigation of any troubles related offenses may be continued or begun. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) If a person has been granted immunity, no criminal enforcement action may be taken against them, it says. After May the 4th, 2024, it says, quote, a coroner must not progress the conduct of an inquest. Wow. As soon as practicable after that day, the coroner responsible for the inquest must close the inquest. <sighs> oh my God. A coroner must not decide to hold an inquest into any death that resulted directly from the troubles, it says. Okay. Mm. And it also says, that the chief constable, the board, the director of the Department of Justice is to cease to deal with any complaint referred before that day insofar as the complaint relates to conduct forming part of the troubles. And equally, the police ombudsman is, quote, not to begin any formal investigation of a matter and is to cease any formal investigation of a matter begun before that day. So all of those process, we are talking about normal institutions of democracy, Right. All of those normal institutions yeah. of democracy are no longer allowed to do any of these things, which any norm- citizen of a, of a of a state should expect to be like to be just a normal thing. This all has to cease, and instead we have this new invented commission, which is is set up by the British government, very one sided. We don't know what kind of oversight it has. Uh, it's a completely new thing it doesn't it doesn't have the sort of complex development of things like courts it doesn't have the the faith that people have developed over years and things like the justice system or institutions like that It's a completely new thing and this mm. takes over and one of its crucial roles is to grant immunity
1: like this is really really radical <laughs> um, like i think you've you've laid it out quite clearly there, and also like i would I would imagine uh, that this quite severely undermines at least the ethos of the Good Friday Agreement or at least the the kind of cross-community legal apparatus of Northern Ireland as it stands today in relation to these things. It is really quite something and if you were, I suppose, very cynical, uh, you might see this as shutting this down, getting this out of the hair of the British government for good and and forever. And I mean, that wouldn't be that hard to believe because if, if we think to, you know, what what existed before this when it came to things like collusion, like you mentioned there, Naomi. The, what we did see over the decades, let's say since the 70s, was a lot of uh, evasion or, or deference probably looks like to a lot of people um, trying to make these inquests or the, the um, preparation for these inquests, etc. last so long that the people involved will die, right? Because it has been four decades, now we're coming up mm-hmm. on, right? Since a lot of these things happened. You know, a lot of these people who are who are still calling for justice are elderly now. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're entering their elderly years, quite a lot of them, let's say parents of young victims back in the 70s. And there was this kind of feeling that the the British government in particular um, was trying to just wait this out and hope that it would all go away. And this, if you were cynical, you could say that this is just fast tracking that and saying, you know, listen, we were never intending to let any of these investigations go ahead in the first place. We never liked them going ahead. They're a waste of our time. We don't want to deal with them. Let's get rid of them.
0: Yeah. You don't have to be cynical to believe that, Tim. I, like, I'll I'll tell yeah. you now that that much of that is the view of the Council of Europe, um, which is what I'll tell yeah. you about next. Like the the reaction to, yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's pretty transparent that the 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 motivating factor for this is to prevent prosecutions, and that's clearly in the interest of the British state. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just not it's not yeah. a stretch at all.
1: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And I, I want to hear more about the Council of Europe, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this being in the interest of the British state then brings us to the fact that it is not in the interest of many supporters of the British state, many unionists, many loyalists in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. who are experiencing a lot of that same rage that I talked about, you know, when it came to people who were killed by, by the British army. Um, a lot of the relatives might have been killed by the IRA or the NLA or, or you know, mm-hmm. various paramilitary groups. So this is a little bit, I I won't say a gamble, but this is a wage decision, I suppose, is a better way to put it from the British government that kind of, once again, they don't really care. There's a unionist fallout or a unionist collateral damage that just, doesn't seem to be taken into account here can you tell me then what is the reaction from the different communities in northern mm-hmm. ireland and uh, like tell me then about the council of europe and how this is being received a little yeah. bit
0: more so it, it's just i mean it just steamrolls um opinion in northern ireland um n- neither community wants impunity for killers and like i said the democratic unionist party hates this bill just as sinn fein does um and yeah the 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 curious thing about it is that this is a really radical break with the traditions of the post-Friday Agreement and the general, uh, like, the practices that led to the Agreement of the Peace, which was cross-community cooperation, and particular cooperation between Ireland and Britain on key things like this. Part of the, as we've discussed in previous episodes, part of the agreement of the peace process is that there would be a reckoning with the past and dealing with the past. And that was one of these issues which hadn't taken place. And what this is, is a unilateral act, um, which hasn't, it goes completely against... Um, the opposition of the Irish government and of, of all political parties in Northern Ireland to force something through. So, mm. it, in and of itself, that means that this attempt, if if if, it, if it, it doesn't have any credibility as an attempt to get closure on and to get the truth to the truth about Troubles-related killings, because if something isn't done on a consensual cross-community basis, it means that people aren't going to trust and work with it. It's, it's it's a one-sided thing. It means that it doesn't have a hope of getting to the truth, even if you were to take it at face value. Um, so there's been overwhelming criticism from victims' groups. Victims were, you know, standing. Um, they've, they've stood outside protesting to try and stop this going ahead. Um, Amnesty International broadcast the faces of victims who were killed um, from various different communities in Northern Ireland onto the Houses of Westminster before the vote was held.
1: Actually, I think we have a clip here of Gronya Teggart from Amnesty UK uh, speaking about this. So let's take a quick listen to that. It is a disturbing interference in the justice system, undermines the rule of law and shields perpetrators at the expense of victims' rights to truth, justice and accountability. Access to justice for serious crimes committed during the Northern Ireland conflict will be removed. Victims will have no access to the courts. Nothing about this bill is victim-centred, and it dismisses victims' strong objections to having paths to justice closed down.
0: Um, It's amazing, though, that there's just been such a deafness to this. I really feel there's been... um I don't know why, but this the the fact of how controversial this bill is doesn't seem to have really broken through in Britain. I think there's a real sense, you know, among the public that they're just sort of bored of hearing about the troubles and they're not interested in hearing about this stuff, and that's that's basically it. So there's not much of an uproar. Oh, imagine there at that,
1: all. Naomi. <laughs> yeah. Well, imagine idea. what a break with the past that would be.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's yeah, it's just like there's no breakthrough at all. As I mentioned, I want like I think it's worth talking about the reaction of the Council of Europe. Um, this is the sort of aspect of this story that I've been reporting on, and I think it's really interesting and worth paying attention to. Um, the Council of Europe, and this reminder is essential because it has a similar name to loads of like other institutions. What the Council of Europe is is yes. it's an institution that was set up after the Second World War, and. The, its aim, the idea of setting it up, was that the really horrific human rights abuses, particularly the killing of civilians by their own states, would not be repeated, okay? Mm. And the mechanism mm. that was designed for ensuring that you don't have a repeat of that is that there's this This is an organization of 46 European countries who to come together and sign a treaty. It's called the European Convention of Human Rights. And they basically agree not to kill and torture people and so on. And then to enforce it, it has a court associated with it, which is called the European Court of Human Rights, which is located in Strasbourg. And that enforces abidance Mm. by these human rights commitments. So citizens, if they feel that their human rights have been breached, they can take a case against their own state to the European Court of Human Rights, okay? European Court of Human Rights, separate from the EU, doesn't have a link to the European Union, but often conflated in public discourse in Britain, sometimes intentionally, I think, And hardcore Brexiteers Mm. talk about withdrawing from it and refer to Strasbourg and stuff like that. Um, This would be a very damaging, uh, horrible precedent for human rights across the continent of Europe. It would be very serious because the court is quite important as a pressure tool, basically, to try and uphold the observance of human rights for prisoners and stuff like that in places like Turkey, uh, which is also a member, as well, of course, across the other 46 states.
1: Right, yeah. And as, as far as I understand as well, you know, the UK was one of the kind of original signatories or founders of the European Court of Human Rights, which is interesting because it, I, I've seen this discussed in British media, and this point is often made. The European Court of Human Rights is separate from the EU. This is not an EU institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you can almost kind of see people on the other side of the panel, let's say, kind of taking that aboard. But then almost the moment that the word European... Is uttered Comes. again. You can see them kind of regain their confidence. Everything <laughs> European is bad, you know. And it, it it has been such. I feel like that one discussion was such a, um, a transparent illustration of how, based on jingoism, a lot of Brexit rhetoric is. It's like mm. the, it's just the word European. Once you get to, once the word European is in it, that's enough. You don't really need an argument, even when mm. the plain argument is you know is saying that this is nothing to do with the EU. That doesn't matter. It's got the word European in it. There. Ergo, it's bad. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm simplifying it but uh, like what i'm trying to say is that sentiment ends up underlying the arguments you know of people Mm -hmm. who were in favor of scrapping it in the uk Mm -hmm. like if if you kind of if you boiled them down if you kept asking them why though why though why though i think it would probably come down to because it's european and you know because that's really all they have the only leg they have to stand on and yet it's successful like yet you know they're they're not doing badly with this at all considering how absolutely outrageous it is Um, But can you tell me, like, what happens then when, like, a state, let's say, has a judgment put against them uh, Mm -hmm. in the context of this um, European Court of Human Rights?
0: It basically operates on peer pressure. So the Council of Europe, as I say, 46 member states, they meet and they go, okay, Mm. hey, Ireland, you've got a judgment against you for, let's say, court cases taking too long. I think that really is something that was found against Ireland. So, what are you doing about it? You know, the court has said you need to take measures to prevent this from happening again. How? Are, where are you on that? And the, the, then the the forty five member states all turn and stare at Ireland, and has to, Ireland has to do something. So it was basically, you know, it, it, it's nice. peer pressure. Yeah. Same same thing with Turkey. I just use the example of Turkey because they have a lot of cases there to do with the imprisonment of political opposition, and Britain equally. Um, Just as a side note, Ireland has had rulings against it, just kind of interesting to note what Mm. they were. They often sort of follow the fault lines of society and like the, you know, the issues of the day. So for example, in 1979 there was a case taken by a Cork woman and she wanted to separate from her abusive husband but she couldn't afford a lawyer so she couldn't get a divorce, okay? And this led to the establishment of a civil legal aid programme in Ireland. That's what led to it. Um, And Then a decade later, Senator David Norris successfully took a case arguing that Ireland's criminalisation of homosexual acts between consenting adults infringed his rights to privacy. And again, this had knock-on effects in Irish law. So you see it there was there's also stuff about being allowed to have information about abortion. You know, it kind of it's it, it's it's had quite crucial effects at key moments. Right, okay. But what's interesting from my perspective is that the Council of Europe has a real problem with this legacy bill and they have not been quiet about it. So in the summer of 2022, they laid out their objections. These are objections were signed up to by all of the other member states um, to this UK law. And they basically, you know, are very concerned that it's contrary to human rights law. Um, so among their uh, objections, why is it unilateral? Why does it break with years of cooperation on peace? Why is it being done by the British side alone? Um, Two, uh, you know, is it why is it's going to be one sided, isn't it? You know, a British appointed commission, um, paramilitary figures aren't going to cooperate with that. So in effect, the only people who are going to get immunity are British soldiers, because British soldiers are the only ones that are going to have the confidence to approach this commission. Paramilitaries would be, you know, mad to write into it, given that, you know, information could be passed on to the PSNI and everything. They They're just not going to be they're not going to trust it. Um, just to quote from it, the decision, quote, noted with concern the proposal to terminate pending inquests that have not reached substantive hearings, bearing in mind the progress finally being made in those inquests. It also said that the bill appeared to offer a remarkably low threshold in offering immunity. So, for example, it doesn't require testimony to be tested for veracity. OK, there's no there's no like cross examination by this commission. Hmm if you if you go for it and you say I want immunity and you know I confess that this is what happened what's the test yeah. for what the person says is correct
1: you could say anything yeah
0: you could say everything what once the immu- yeah. once the immunity is granted it's irrevocable even if it subsequently emerges that that person gave false information to the body Wow. There is some punishment set out in the bill for false information, but it's like a fine and stuff like that. I mean, it's—I don't know how seriously people will take it, especially if like the alternative is facing like murder charges.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, you'll—you'll you'll take a hefty fine rather than life in prison, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, I'd
0: imagine. I'd imagine. Um. So yeah, yeah. The, you know, courts, institutions like courts, are set up to deal with these kind of questions, right? You have perjury, you have cross-examination. This is just what you know. Why abandon? All of those things why abandon things like inquest to suddenly invent this entirely new thing which is just run by like a judge and, and like a couple of buddies to you know to investigate mm. these uh, anyway so the, finally it um it noted profound concern with respect to independence particularly insofar as this process relates to deaths that are alleged to have resulted from the use of force by state agents. Whoa. Okay, so it's it's literally expressing its concerns that this that collusion is a factor here, and and sort of excuse stopping investigation into collusion is a factor here. The, the Council of Europe has literally said this. That's forty five yeah. European countries have signed up on this um, declaration. Yeah. It also says. Families and victims groups are worried that the Commission will not carry out effective investigations, nor deliver meaningfully for their loved one. For many, the concept of immunity, conditional or otherwise, is about protecting perpetrators instead of securing justice or upholding the rule of law. End quote.
1: Okay. I mean, the Council of Europe, like you say, has really taken a stance on this. They're yeah. not, um, you know, they're not shying shying away from saying this out loud. Mm-hmm. That's, that says a lot, I suppose. Yeah, doesn't it? That, that they feel confident enough to do that. From what the Council of Europe is saying here, you'd almost get the idea that they have some collusion cases in mind. Now, like the only thing that would kind of stop me from thinking this is a great big conspiracy theory, that there are conclusion, collusion cases that uh, the British state wants to cover up in uh, specifically, is mm-hmm. the fact that the people running the British state right now don't seem to be that that bright or even really know where Northern <laughs> Ireland is. So like I just don't think that they they have the brains to kind of pull off any kind of conspiracy like that. Um, but it seems to be a broader thing that the the people in running this bill have, I suppose, been informed that if collusion cases are allowed to progress further, like is mentioned there, mm-hmm. um, that it could be the, a fountain of a lot of embarrassment or a lot of scandal for the British government and especially if some of these more uh, some of these darker aspects are, uh, are unearthed i suppose the question of immunity for soldiers as well would be completely undermined right in cases of collusion um, I just want to remind our listeners before you respond to that um, ab- about the issues of collusion. We made an episode about collusion, I think, a year ago, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. The implications of a, a lot of these cases of collusion is that the British government was just way, way, way more involved in paramilitary activity and the British Army uh, in paramilitary activity than they ever really admitted, and that the British state may have been running a quote unquote dirty war within the context of the Troubles, in other words, arming paramilitaries, perhaps organising killings and things like that. So go and listen to our collusion episode if you want to get more in-depth and more nuanced uh, descriptions of that than I'm giving you right now. Uh, mm. But Naomi, yeah, could you maybe, what, what would you see that as? Like, first of all, how the British government is approaching this and how the Council of Europe is suspecting that the British government is approaching this in terms of in, in terms of reason for this bill?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's really important to know that the Council of Europe knows what it's talking about because you know how I said mm. they sit around and peer pressure each other to do stuff about judgments. They've been doing that no. to the UK relating to a group of cases which are about killings during the troubles in which there is suspected collusion by state agents. So they've been saying to the mm. UK for years, you need to have proper in- inquiries, investigations, and inquests into these cases where there's suspected collusion by state uh, agents. And th- the UK hasn't been doing that. So this is sort of like a long-going row that's happened. Um, so basically, mm. what the the cases that are that are concerned they're called the mercur group of cases they were before the european court of human rights what they are is their deaths during the 1980s and 1990s um for which you know it was found that investigations were inadequate it includes for example the killing of belfast human rights lawyer pat vanucan and in the words of the council of europe these deaths occurred quote either during security force operations or in circumstances giving rise to the suspicion of collusion in their deaths by security force personnel, okay? Who was Pat Panukin? He was 39, he was a solicitor. Um, He had represented some high-profile IRA members, also loyalists, and he was... He was killed, he was gunned down by loyalist gunmen at his home in front of his wife and children. One of those children now happens to be a Sinn Féin MP representing North Belfast. Um, The investigation into his death was almost immediately stopped and halted by police. And an investigation subsequently found that there were two British state agents who had some degree of involvement in his death. For example, procuring the guns for it. Um, So the Council of Europe has insisted there has to be an inquiry into this, but the UK has refused to do so. so I, I the, the Council of Europe in my view definitely sees these two issues as linked and like you can read that quite clearly from their statements. the UK has been refusing to investigate these cases in which again, its own citizens were killed, possibly with the collusion of state forces. And now that we had some results finally coming out, some results of inquests and, and the beginning of some, some prosecutions and so on, it's acted to stop all further investigations and it's set up this one-sided commission appointed by the government that has the ability to pardon anyone and everyone. So, you know, I, I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, you were saying, you know, a cynic might see this as a self-interested move. I don't think you have to be a cynic to see it as that.
1: Yeah, I'm like a cynic might say, that one of the greatest weapons in the arsenal of the British government in just getting this passed is the apathy of people in Britain, mm-hmm. right? This has been a, a constant uh, of our podcast, right? Just how this has affected so many things that happened, especially in the 20th century in Ireland. Just the fact that like, people in the island of Britain didn't know or didn't care. Just the very simple issues of people you know, not, not knowing whether mm-hmm. Northern Ireland is in the UK or not, which you know, we, we kind of dipped in and out of during the Brexit negotiations. I mean, there's that level, uh, of course, uh, of ignorance. Then there's the level of ignorance that we saw where, uh, like you mentioned, I remember Rishi Sunak having never been to Northern Ireland before yeah. he went and tried, and tried to court the DUP. But then there's the level of ignorance that's very political. When we think back of the episodes that we did recently, like the killing of Lord Mountbatten, mm. um, that we, we looked at the, the policy uh, paper that was delivered in the late 1970s by the British state to try and recruit only soldiers from Northern Ireland, partially because they mm. wouldn't make the headlines. When they were killed, they wouldn't make the headlines in Britain because nobody yeah. cared what happened to um, people from Northern Ireland but when a british soldier was killed in northern ireland it was this all over the red top tabloids it was this big a national scandal in, in britain there is this huge power in just how little so many people in Britain care about what happens to Northern Ireland frankly Mm -hmm. I mean there's no point kind of circuit coding that at this stage is there Um, and it's a historical thing and it's you know it's 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 driven historical movements throughout the 20th and 21st century that is the reason that the IRA started bombing Britain because they wanted to draw attention that just wasn't being given to Northern Ireland to Mm -hmm. uh, to their political cause so even with any reaction that happens from the exterior to this I find it very difficult to imagine the gravity of this Mm -hmm. breaking through to a large proportion of citizens uh in Britain mm. uh you know which is something that the government must know or if like that's actually giving them too much credit the the government this current British government is kind of part of that significant group of people who don't know anything about Northern Ireland so for them it's like of course we don't care about this we've never even mm. thought about it and no nor nor has anyone that we know so yeah sorry um <laughs> let me let me bring you on to what, what happens, happens now because yeah. like this seems really momentous so what does happen now what, what are the options for for right. different actors in
0: this so um ireland might sue britain um so right, okay. ireland <laughs> might take a what's called an interstate case against the uk um in the immediate reaction um in some comments by the t-shock leah varadkar was that you know they're taking legal advice and we should hear about this in the coming weeks what is an interstate case um basically i mentioned the hum- U- european court of human rights how civilians you know they can take their states to court states can also take other states as well um this does happen sometimes it's not very common um it's quite you know it's a sign of pretty bad relations um my guess this is complete guess um but my guess is what they could do is that ireland could ask the european court of human rights for what's called interim measures interim measures means you have to have a really quick decision on something because there's an imminent risk of irreparable harm um, and the European Court of Human Rights can like, very quickly issue a judgment ordering one of its members to do something or not to do something. So, for example, you could imagine the European Court of Human Rights kind of ordering Britain to freeze this bill or, or not, not to put it into force uh, pending some sort of full resolution in court. That That's just a full mm. b- guess of mine. That You might remember this happened when Britain wanted to uh, deport people to Rwanda. And that caused, again uproar and outrage um, among the right in Britain. I think just like that happened happened before, it could lead to like a renewal of calls on the British rights to leave the European Court of Human Rights for its meddling, um, which uh, would be unfortunate. Um, but I think, you know, in the, in the longer term and taking the broader picture, I think it's really important to pay attention to the depth of disillusionment that acts like this foster, particularly in Northern Ireland. Like we've said, you know, these people who were killed were apparently the UK's own civilians, like their own citizens. And the state does not seem to want justice or answers for their deaths. And like, that's just an incredibly striking message to anybody living in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland on whatever side that they have to be. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, not not only do they not want justice or answers, they they are actively trying to prevent justice and answers from being found.
0: They have, like, they'll say that this is, you know this is to get closure and that the commission is to get answers and you know to finally allow victims to move on but they have been told that this is so deeply flawed and the victims are against it and they want the normal democratic processes of inquests and judicial processes to work and that's what they want um like so they're well aware <laughs> that you know this isn't supported and they've decided you know, to just, we know best or whatever, um, or just our interests come first, I suppose. I think maybe it's worth leaving with the sound of the people most affected by this. This is a clip of Michael O'Hare. Um, he's the brother of Magella O'Hare. Uh, she was 12, a 12-year-old, 12 and she was shot as she was walking past a British army patrol with a group of friends going to church. Subsequent investigations found that it was indeed fired by a soldier. There were initial claims by the army that this was like an exchange of fire, that there had been some IRA sniper in the area, but this was subsequently kind of rebuffed. And the UK Ministry of Defence has since said that it was very unlikely there was any gunman in the area when uh, Magella was shot. Um, so the family has been looking for justice for a really long time and, and answers on this and Michael O'Hare is one of the people who has been openly speaking up about this bill so we can hear a little bit from what he had to say. This is from an Amnesty International report.
2: My parents, my dad and my mum, they weren't vexatious in any way but there was a case to answer. The killing was swept under the carpet. She was 12 years of age when she was shot down by a British soldier on her way to church. When you've lost a loved one there is no drawing of a line The pain lives with you every day, and the government are only adding to the trauma. The past is ever-present. My 12-year-old sister, Majella, was killed 44 years ago. She was a sweet, innocent girl. We will never know the potential of her life. When would you stop fighting for a loved one? Justice has to be done. It could now be denied forever. This bill must be scrapped.
1: Right, so listeners, we're going to leave you with that. I want to thank you, uh, Naomi. Thank you so much for for explaining all that to us in such detail. And I'll remind you, listeners, that we made some other episodes that if you're interested in this issue, you might be interested in listening to. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes if you want to go and listen to those. And a final reminder that if you want extra content uh, from the Irish Passport podcast, you can follow us over on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. And we'll be back soon.
0: Thanks so much for listening.